0: Our constitution is a document in which we the people tell the government what it is allowed to do. We the people are free.
1: Once again, we welcome you to Constitution Classroom with your host, Colonel John Eitzmo from the Foundation for Moral Law. Colonel, last week uh, you spent some time taking us through the Sixth Amendment. For those who may not have been a part of that conversation, could you summarize what we covered and, and where we're likely to go today?
0: I certainly can, Brian. It's certainly good to be with you again this week and good to be with all those who are part of the listening audience here and all of those who have an interest in our Constitution We're seeing disorder in our streets. We're seeing lockdowns. We're seeing so many issues that should remind us how the Constitution of the United States is as important as it ever was, and possibly more so. But if we're going to summarize the Sixth Amendment, probably the best way to do that is to begin by reading it. In all criminal prosecutions, which, as we saw before, are defined as felonies and misdemeanors, but usually not petty misdemeanors, although at the state level sometimes those will be included as well here. The accused shall enjoy the right to a speedy and public trial, as we saw with a speedy trial. There's no set number of days that we looked at, but we looked at the case of Barker versus Wingo, the Wingo factors as they are called four factors that the court looks at in determining whether or not one's speedy trial right has been violated. They ask, first of all, has the defendant requested a speedy trial? Has he asserted that right? They'll ask, second, if there has been quite a long delay, what the reasons for the delay was. Was it a crowded court docket? Was it the fact that this case was extra complex and took longer to prepare, or witnesses that they had difficulty locating what were the reasons third they will ask how long the delay has been obviously as i said there's no cutoff time but the longer it is the more likely it is to be a speedy trial violation a delay of a year is more likely to be a speedy trial violation than a delay of six months for example and finally has the defendant been harmed by this delay harm could include being in pretrial confinement during that time. It could be that he's been laid off from his job because of this. Maybe several of his witnesses are in the process of moving away or an important witnesses on his deathbed, other reasons like this. And so we, as they say, we call those the, the wingo factors And the court will determine whether or not one has been denied the right to a speedy trial. We noted also last week that this is a right that defendants commonly want, but usually their attorneys will tell them it's not a good idea to exercise this right, because delays generally work in favor of the defense and against the prosecution. The longer a case drags on, the more likely it is to result in a dismissal, a acquittal, or a plea bargain. One defense attorney has been quoted as saying, the world's best defense attorney is father time. A speedy and public trial. And again, the average defendant probably doesn't want a public trial. He doesn't really want his girlfriend and his neighbors and his parents and his second grade Sunday school teacher to read in the paper about everything that's been going on in this case and the things that he's been doing. But usually, a public trial is in the interest of justice as a whole, and in this particular case, because if trials are in secret, judges can then act arbitrarily, so can prosecutors. If it's out in the open, where the public is watching, then it makes it much more likely that the prosecutor or the judge is going to behave in a corrupt or an unfair way. So, your public trials generally work to the advantage of the defense and to the public as a whole. So that's a right the defendant has, even though it's one that he may not want. And it's to be by an impartial jury. We already saw last week the ways in which we ensure that a jury is impartial by voir dire, that is questioning the jurors and by excluding those who might have a reason to be biased. It's to be in the state and district where the crime has been committed and that's to be ascertained by law in other words rather than the defendant having to stand for a trial somewhere clear across the country it's to be tried right there at home and part of this goes back to the american colonies where sometimes people were being summoned to be tried for cases back home in england and that's one of the reasons this is put in the bill of rights that Here in the United States, we are simply not going to allow that sort of thing to be done. Now, there are a few instances where a defendant might not want to have the trial in his home community. If it's the case where the community has been inflamed in its passions about this by a lot of pretrial publicity and so on, the case of Officer Chauvin there in Minneapolis with the killing of George Floyd, that might be a good example of this, that he may feel that because of all that publicity, he's not able to get a fair trial there in Minneapolis. And so he can request to have the trial transferred to somewhere else. But of course, since it's state charges, it'd be somewhere else in the state of Minnesota, but you couldn't have it transferred to somewhere out of state. Federal trial could be transferred to Anywhere else in the country. Anyway, so that's the basic part of this right. Next part of this, which might seem pretty simple, but to be informed of the nature and cause of the accusation. In other words, before a defendant goes to court, he has a right to be informed what it is he is going to court for, what it is he's been accused of. That would just seem to be natural, but In the courts in England many times and courts in the European continent many times, they conducted their trials as an inquisitorial form, where rather than having an adversary system of a prosecution and a defense, you had judges who were the fact finders asking questions, and a defendant might be brought before one of those courts not even knowing what he's there for, and he's getting all these questions fired at him, and doesn't know the purpose of the questions and so on, and has no way of preparing a defense. And so he's entitled to know what it is that he is charged with before he's put on the stand to ask to answer questions or before the police interrogate him. But also, he's entitled to know that sufficiently advanced, so he's going to have a time to prepare a defense. I'm thinking about a case I had back in the military one time, and Anyway, this was not a formal court trial. This was what was called an Article 15 proceeding where the defendant can waive a trial but can ask that he have a hearing before his commander. And in this case, this young man was charged with the offense of failure to repair, which in the old military terminology meant failure to show up for duty. And so I received this charge, and I'm talking to the airman in my office, and he said, but I was there. I, I was there. And I said, well, can we present some evidence that will help corroborate Clark- operate that? And well, he said, I can show the duty record. My first sergeant will testify I was there, and then I can show work that I did that morning. The guy at the desk next to me, I can get him to testify I was there. So I said, all right, we will ask for a hearing before the commander. So we asked for the hearing, and the hearing is set. I bring these records and bring these witnesses with me to testify before the commander that, yes, in fact, he was there the day that you said he wasn't. The charge has simply said failure to repair on such and such date. But I was there, and I started presenting the evidence, and then the commander said, well, there's a misunderstanding here. I'm not charging him with not showing up for work in the morning. I'm charging him with not coming back to work after lunch in the afternoon. Well, we had to go back and reformulate the defense and everything, but the point of the matter is I couldn't really prepare a defense for him without knowing the nature of the charge against him. and. This just delayed things a little bit in this case, but in some cases that could really cause a problem. So that is one of the rights that he's guaranteed, the right to be informed of the nature and the cause of the accusation and to be informed of that nature and cause sufficiently, precisely, that he'll be able to formulate a defense and also sufficiently in advance that he will have time to perform a defense. Important constitutional right, although usually that's not going to be a major issue. Usually that one's taken care of.
1: All right, we're down to about thirty seconds left in this segment, uh, Colonel. Thank you for the recap and and again the the historical perspective which you offered in in the last show that we did on the Sixth Amendment. Where would you like to go in in the segments ahead of us today?
0: We'll just continue with the Sixth Amendment then, and the clause that comes up next will be. Be confronted with weapons.
1: Okay, and we'll pick up right there when we continue just the other side of these messages. you back to Constitution Classroom with Colonel John Eidsmo from the Foundation for Moral Law. Colonel, as we are continuing our journey through the Sixth Amendment of the Bill of Rights, we're going to talk now about uh, c- confronting witnesses. And I, I'm all ears. How does this play into protecting our legal rights?
0: Well, if you've ever had the experience where somebody has said, can you look me in the eye and tell me that? Sometimes looking somebody in the eye and see them repeat what they've just said, somehow there's a way that that impresses upon them the seriousness of what they're saying. And there is something about that that brings out whether the person is telling the truth or not. And the framers recognize this, and we see this in the confrontation clause, it is called, in the Sixth Amendment. We've already seen the Sixth Amendment says in all criminal prosecutions, the accused shall enjoy the right to, and now we come to this next part, be confronted with the witnesses against him. Sometimes in England, the practice had been that there would be a written statement by a person that they would be, it would be introduced in court, charging a person with an offense, or maybe a police officer coming in and saying, I talked to this witness and here's what the witness told me that the defendants did, but that's not confronting the witness. And, you know, the Bible has something to say about this. The King James, we read in Proverbs 18 verse 7, he that is first in his own cause seemeth just, but his neighbor cometh and searches him. Or as we see this In the New Living Translation, the first to speak in court sounds right until the cross-examination begins. And an important part about confronting the witnesses is being able to not just hear them testify, but to cross-examine them. Now, this right to confront and cross-examine is important because, first of all, Direct evidence is going to be better than secondhand evidence. In other words, to have someone come to court and testify in court, this is what I saw the defendant do, that's more likely to be reliable than having somebody say, here's what this person told me he saw the defendant do. So if you if you cross examine that person who says this is what that person told me, you're not really getting to cross examine the source of the information itself. There's a game that some people play in parties, or we used to play this in church youth group. That it's a game called telephone, where you'd be sitting in a circle, and you might just whisper a story, maybe a hundred words or so of a story to The person sitting next to you, that person would whisper it to the next person. It'd go around the circle like that. By the time it got back to the original, the story would be so different from the story originally told that it really bore no resemblance. And so the further we are removed from that, the less reliable evidence is. That's why part of this idea of confronting witnesses means that we don't allow Hearsay evidence, with some exceptions. Because hearsay evidence tends to be less reliable. It gets distorted in the process of transmission. And also, it doesn't give the opportunity to cross-examine the original source. Now, there are a few exceptions to the rule that hearsay evidence is not admitted. We do admit a few kinds of hearsay evidence. One kind that we'll admit, for example, is what we call a dying declaration. For example, let's say if a police officer hears a shot and rushes around the corner to see what's going on and sees a victim lying there in a pool of blood and goes up to the victim and they ask the victim, what happened? And the victim in his last dying breath says, it was Spike Jones what shot me. Uh, Well, that's usually going to be admissible as a dying declaration, because obviously we're not going to be able to bring him back to testify, so the original source is not available, but also the idea is that if somebody is ready to meet his god in the next few seconds, he's probably not going to lie, so dying declarations are an exception. And even though when the police officer testifies, here's what the dying man told me, that is hearsay, that's considered reliable hearsay. Another form is what we call business records. And business records, medical record might be considered a business record, for example. Records like this are often considered to be more reliable than the actual recollection itself. Let's say, for example, I were to put a businessman on the stand and ask him, what were your gross receipts for your business for, let's say, October 10th of 2017? Well, he may be able to give me a rough estimate, but he likely doesn't really remember, and so what he says is going to be a guess. But if I introduce instead his ledger from the day, That will probably be accurate to the penny. In other words, a business record is probably going to be a lot more reliable than the person's memory. And so business records, medical records, other kinds of records like this are considered to be exceptions to the hearsay rule. And even though technically they are hearsay, they're considered admissible, but the basic rule is that we have a right to confront the direct evidence itself, and we have a right to cross-examine. Now, the right to cross-examine is one that attorneys usually will try to get a great deal of practice at, to uh, become skilled in cross-examination. But the fact of the matter is, oftentimes lawyers do themselves a lot more harm, and do their clients a lot more harm than good during Cross examination because what they will do in cross examination, many times as they try to bring up inconsistencies or problems with the witness's story, is they're giving the witness the opportunity to clear those up. The story is told about an attorney one time who is questioning this witness, and the witness claims that he saw the defendant commit a crime. Well, now you say you saw him commit the crime. Did you have your glasses on? Well, no, I'd forgotten them at that time. My trifle wolves weren't with me. Well, how far away was this? Well, it was perhaps 50 yards. What time of day was it? It was 11 o'clock at night. Was it, what was the weather like? Well, it was kind of a fog and a little bit of mist. Well, 11 o'clock at night from 50 yards away Without your spectacles and in fog and mist, how can you be sure the person you saw was the defendant? See, if he hadn't asked that question and stopped right there, he might have had a good point. But asking that final question where he thinks he's closed in for the kill, well, the witness simply answers, well, because he was right under a streetlight. Sometimes... You learn the art and cross-examination of stopping at the appropriate point. And cross-examining expert witnesses, for example, attorneys many times really do their case a lot of harm by this. But you have a right to cross-examine, to question about the sources, where you got this, how you, you say you were 50 feet away. How do you know it was 50 feet? Where do you get this estimate? And things like that. You can bring out contradictions, uncertainties, and so on. And anyway, so the right to confront and to cross-examine is a very important right that is guaranteed to us in the Sixth Amendment.
1: Well, and no courtroom drama would ever be as interesting without it either.
0: Absolutely. Courtroom dramas many times are written by fiction authors. (laughs)
1: Let's take a very quick break. Colonel Idesmo is our host. He is from the Foundation for Moral Law, and this is Constitution Classroom. Thank mm-hmm. you. This is Constitution Classroom. Your host is Colonel John Eidsmo from the Foundation for Moral Law. And, Colonel, you have been explaining to us as part of the Sixth Amendment of the Bill of Rights the essential need to confront witnesses. And I think you've given us some really good examples of why this matters so.
0: A few of the things we could mention about the right to confront witnesses, and one of those is that sometimes you're going to have evidence that is circumstantial evidence. And circumstantial evidence sometimes can be very persuasive. Henry David Thoreau, if you recall from literature, Henry David Thoreau once made the statement that sometimes circumstantial evidence is very persuasive, like when you find a trout in the milk. And I usually will ask my law students, well, what does he mean by that? And they have no idea because we're in a different era. But in those days, you didn't have pasteurization processes and Things like this, but when a farmer would bring milk to markets, let's say he has a five-gallon container of milk there, but his cows have only given three and a half gallons today, well, to get it up to five gallons, he might kind of inflate it with a little bit of water to bring it up to five gallons, and they wouldn't have a real way of proving whether he had done that or not. If nobody saw him adding water, how would they prove it? Well, this milk tastes a little bit watery, but pretty hard to come up with some good proof. But Thoreau was saying, if you find a trout swimming in that milk container, that's pretty good evidence that this guy has diluted it with water. So the circumstantial evidence sometimes can be very powerful. I gave the example of the witness who says, Yes, I saw the defendant commit that murder. Well, you were fifty yards away. You didn't have your trifocals on. It was 11 o'clock at night and dark and misty. Are you really sure when you saw him that that guy under that hooded sweatshirt was the defendant? But on the other hand, if you have circumstantial evidence that says, no, I didn't see it happen, but there was a knife sticking in the defendant's, in the victim's back, I saw footprints in the snow leading away from the body, and those footprints matched a pair of shoes that the defendant is wearing. The defendant's fingerprints are found on the knife. We have records from the sporting goods store show the defendant bought that knife a day before. Well, that's all circumstantial evidence, but it is still quite persuasive, and with DNA evidence and so on, that makes it even more persuasive. You know, the scriptures tell us that in the mouth of two or three witnesses, let everything be established. In other words, we need proof. Rather than just relying on one witness, we need proof, corroboration. And two witnesses, well, two witnesses could lie or be mistaken as well, but it's less likely than with one. But Now we're looking to other means of corroboration, DNA evidence, fingerprint evidence, hair samples, other matters like this. And even though these are technically circumstantial evidence, they still can be very persuasive and helpful in establishing the kind of corroboration that we need to prove that someone is guilty by proof beyond a reasonable doubt. One thing else that becomes an issue, and this is really been an issue in the last several decades, particularly, but in case of uh, sexual cases, rape cases in particular, the issue here is, does a rape victim have to testify in person, in public, against the accuser? After all, you've got media there who are watching, and what she testifies to is going to be reported to the public, and the A defense attorney will probably cross-examine her about her past sexual history, and with good reason, because that could be relevant to an issue as to whether she consented or whether the defendant reasonably believed she had consented, and so it could be traumatizing for her to have to testify, and she might be unwilling to testify if she has to do that. And so... The courts have been trying to devise means by which a victim in a situation like that can testify in a way that is not traumatizing for her and does not cause her to not want to testify, but at the same time, secure the defendant's right to this confrontation, cross-examination to the witness behind you know closing the chambers to the public and so on for that particular part of the hearing and the like. Those are sometimes the way that's being done. But that's a very difficult situation, fortunately. It doesn't come up very often. Anyway, there is the confrontation clause, an important part of our right in a free society, because we want to be very sure that nobody is convicted of a crime that He is not, in fact, guilty of committing. The Sixth Amendment goes on to say that in all criminal prosecutions, the accused shall enjoy the right to have compulsory process for obtaining witnesses in his favor. Now, what we mean by this, compulsory process, means that not just that he has the right to confront and cross-examine the witnesses that the prosecution brings, But he has a right to testify himself or not testify, as he sees it, and also the right to put on a defense by bringing in his witnesses and his exhibits. And we say compulsory process for this because let's suppose that the defendant has some witnesses that would be willing to say that he was not the one who committed the crime. Are we going to say that somebody else committed the crime? Or we going to say that, oh, I saw the defendants the day of the crime 300 miles from here, and so it couldn't have been him that committed us? And so as we look to a compulsory process, we say that he's entitled to present these witnesses. But not just that he's entitled to present them, but it may be that, these witnesses aren't willing to testify. Maybe it's a police officer who has some evidence that could be favorable to the accused and he feels some pressure from his department not to come forward with that information. Or maybe it's somebody who's afraid that if he sticks up for the defendant, he's going to lose his job or doesn't want to get involved for whatever reason. Well, so... One of our protections here is that the defendant is entitled to subpoena these witnesses. And subpoena is a court order saying, you must come and you are required to testify and you will be found in contempt of court and fined or jailed if you fail to do so. And so that's an added protection for the accused that just as the prosecutor can subpoena witnesses to testify, so can the defendant he can subpoena witnesses, even witnesses who are unwilling to testify. Now, generally, and I'd say this is true in civil cases and criminal cases alike, in criminal cases, it's true whether you're the prosecutor or the defense attorney, either one. The right to, you know, or force witnesses to testify is a right that you would prefer not to use if you don't have to and the reason is simply this you can force a person to come to court and you can force a person to testify but you can't control what they're going to say or how they're going to say it and testimony from an unwilling witness many times is not going to be very helpful either the witness will lie or the witness will color his testimony in such a way as to make it much less powerful than you would like it to be. And so if you have an unwilling witness, usually if there is a willing witness or another way that you can establish that fact, it's better to do that. You subpoena an unwilling witness only if there is no other way that you can prove what you want to prove. Nevertheless, that right to subpoena witnesses, that's a right that applies to the defense just like it applies to the prosecution. And it is a very important right. In fact, sometimes I've had government officials that I've needed to call as defense witnesses, and they have just simply said to me outright, well, I'm willing to testify, but I would certainly prefer that you subpoena me. That way he can show the subpoena to the boss and say, look, I have to go testify. They subpoenaed me. So it's a way of getting the witness off the hook, too.
1: This is probably as good a point as any for us to take a quick pause. Again, we thank you for joining us on Constitution Classroom with Colonel John Eidsmo from the Foundation for Moral Law. We will take a short break. We will pay a couple of bills and we'll be back to talk more about the Sixth Amendment to the Bill of Rights right here. Mm -hmm. And we welcome you to the final segment of today's show of the Constitution Classroom with Colonel John Eidsmo from the Foundation for Moral Law. Now, Colonel, there's still a lot left to the Sixth Amendment, to the Bill of Rights, and we're going to touch on some of this next week. But where did you want to go in this final segment?
0: There's one more aspect of this right to compulsory process, to compel people to testify. There are some instances of people who cannot be compelled to testify either for the prosecution or for the defense. One of these would be a co-defendant, and this gets into a really complex issue here. There is somebody else who is also being charged in the same crime, and that person has chosen to exercise his Fifth Amendment right not to testify. Well, generally speaking, and there are some exceptions here, like a grant of immunity and things, but Generally speaking, that person, I can't bring that person in to testify on my behalf either because he does have a right to assert his Fifth Amendment's right to refuse to incriminate himself. Sometimes the way they'll get around that is by a grant of immunity, by a grant of immunity saying, we will grant, we will agree that we will not prosecute you. And since we've agreed not to prosecute you, now you no longer have the right to refuse to incriminate yourself. But then there are certain communications that we call privileged communications. And the law has decided that we should encourage certain people to talk freely among themselves about certain things. And it would destroy the whole concept of talking freely and confidentially among themselves People could be forced to testify in court about things that had been told them. And we have a few of these categories of privileged communications. And one of these is an attorney, the attorney-client privilege. As the attorney for my client, the prosecutor couldn't put me on the stand and say, okay, counselor, did the defendant tell you anything about whether or not he committed the crime or not? And here I am as the defense attorney. Oh, you were a tricky prosecutor. Yes, you got me there. He, yes, he was in my office, and he told me he committed. The, no. As an attorney, we have a recall, the attorney-client privilege. And I will commonly advise my client of this, that anything that you tell me in the privacy of my office, not only do I not have to reveal to the court, but I can't reveal it to the court, even if I want to do, which I don't. And now there's a reason for this. The reason is attorneys can better represent their clients and bring out a defense for the client if the client is free to tell the attorney whatever he wants to tell the attorney. And if the client if if I have to say to my client, "Oh anything you say to me is going to they, they can force me to testify in court. I'm not going to find out from my client the truth of the case. And so we have that basic rule then that the attorney-client privilege, I cannot testify even if I wanted to as to things that my client told me. Now, this applies, first of all, only if there really is an attorney-client relationship. The fact that I'm an attorney and somebody might have mentioned this to me in church or out of the golf course if no attorney-client relationship has been established, then the, then that's not going to be a privileged communication. If my client has told me that he intends to commit a crime of violence in the future, I have a duty to report that to, because we want to prevent these crimes from taking place. If he tells me that he's going to perpetrate a fraud on the court, I have a duty to disclose that. But with a few exceptions like that, we have what we call this attorney-client privilege. Another privilege is the clergyman penitent or priest penitent privilege, that people should be encouraged to talk freely with their spiritual advisors, their clergyman, their rabbi, their imam, their priest, whoever it might be. And not only is that something we want to encourage people, because we want people to be able to get good counsel and so on in matters like this, but also with some religions, particularly Roman Catholicism, there is such a thing as confession that is a very important part of the church doctrine and ritual. And anyway, so a priest cannot be required to testify as to something that one of his parishioners has told him. There was a case in the 1800s, the Father Pierre case of a priest who was accused of the crime of murder, and in fact, the actual murderer had confessed to him in the the confessional that he had committed the crime. But this priest, rather than reveal to the court what would have exonerated him, he refused to break the seal of the confessional And as a result, he was convicted of the crime of murder and sentenced to a lengthy prison term. On his deathbed, the actual criminal criminal confessed that it was he and not Father Pierre that had committed the crime. But at any rate, there was a faithful priest who was willing to suffer a conviction himself rather than break that seal of the confessional, which he saw as being his duty as a priest. Another. Privilege like this is the doctor-patient privilege. If you go into the doctor's office and ask for treatment for a broken leg, and the doctor asks, "Well, how do you break how do you break your leg?" Well, it was running away from the police after that bank that bank robbery. Well, you're not going to tell the doctor how that happened if the doctor can be called in court to testify as to what you told him was the cause of the defendant's injury. And it's in the best interest of proper medical treatment so that doctors be free to talk to their patients and patients be free to talk to their doctors about what caused their injuries and medical conditions. And so the doctor-patient privilege is another exception. Also applies to psychologists generally. Now, another area where the well, husband-wife is another privilege that a wife cannot be required to testify against her husband, the husband cannot be required to testify against his wife, not only because we believe it is best that we have confidential communications between husbands and wives in the moral context like this, but also because of the traditional Biblical doctrine that a husband and wife, when they are married, they become one flesh. And so if a husband and wife are one flesh, then if a husband testifies against his wife, that is testifying against yourself. That's part of the way that doctrine originated. In a few states, the parent cannot be required to testify against the child, but in most states, they can. One other area where this has been quite controversial in recent years is the Journalist's privilege for the confidential informant. If a journalist is talking to an informant, an informant gives him information about a crime, let's say we have a murder case that is going on, and somebody calls a journalist and says, "I want to reveal to you here's the here's the real real person who committed the crime, but I'm doing this in confidence. This is strict confidence between you and me," and The journalist said, okay, I'll keep it confidential. And then he prints in his paper, an anonymous informant called me, or a confidential informant called me and told me that there is another person who actually committed the crime and the defendant is actually innocent. Well, can that informant or, or can that journalist be required in court to reveal his confidential informant? In the federal courts, the answer is yes. They do not recognize a journalist's privilege in this way. In most states, the answer is yes. They don't recognize a journalist privilege. There are a few who, in a few states in which that is allowed, the majority it is not. And I've seen journalists. I've heard journalists complain vociferously that their freedom of the press rights are being denied by being required to disclose confidential informants, but let's suppose that you as a defendant are on trial and on trial for your life in a murder case. And there is a journalist who has information that could clear you, but is refusing to reveal it. I think you would feel in that case that it is the equities are on the side of requiring the journalist to testify. Anyway, so these areas of confidential informants That is another exception to the compulsory process, and it means not only does the defendant not have the right to call people to testify that are in privileged communications like this, but the prosecutor cannot require it either. In other words, this applies to both sides of the case evenly, and it applies in civil cases as well as in criminal cases.
1: All right, Colonel, we have uh, we have made our way through a fair amount of the Sixth Amendment, but there is still more to come next week, and we've got about 20 seconds. What will we be talking about next week on the program?
0: Next week will be the right to counsel, the right to an attorney. But what if you can't afford one? Then what? <music>